1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up podcast. Solly here. Today's episode is going to be with Mark Kalkovecchia. Uh, you may have heard Kalk on the 1991 Deep Dive podcast we did. Testified to everything that went down on that final day and how it affected him. And we talk a little bit about that, but, uh, you know, didn't want to get too deep into it considering we've already covered a lot of that subject matter. But I had a great conversation with how he qualified for the tour, a money conversation. And Kalk is just the best, uh, you know, just very straightforward guy. He's going to tell it like it is and uh, greatly appreciated his time. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Smathers and Branson Father's Day. Coming up soon, if you're looking for a great gift uh, for any any dad in your life, could be your own dad, or maybe send this to a significant other uh, and say, hey, this is what I want for Father's Day. They're in, Smathers and Branson's in pro shops all over the country. I promise you, you've seen their stuff somewhere. Uh, even if you're not fully aware of it, they are just deep in the needlepoint game. They have so many offerings Mainly known for their belts, I'm actually wearing my Scarsdale Smathers and Branson belt as we speak. Officially licensed over 115 colleges and universities at MLB, NFL, NHL. You can get a belt with your favorite team on it. They got limited edition championship collections for those leagues. They got Grateful Dead stuff, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd. They got Formula One belts and other needlepoint related materials. Just go to Smathersandbranson.com, S-M-A-T-H-E-R-S, and Branson, B R A N S O N.com. You can view their entire offering and then you get 15% off your order plus free shipping with the code NLU15. Again, smathersandbranson.com. Use promo code NLU15 and get 15% off all their offerings. Uh, I, I'm going to be shopping with them more in the future. And again, it makes, makes a perfect gift or it may, uh, may fit in great in your own personal wardrobe. So thanks again to Smatters and Branson for the sponsorship promo code NLU15 without any further delay. Here is Mark Calcovecchia. So tell me about RV life. This seems to have a pretty big impact on your life and your career. Uh, your wife travels with you a lot. You guys seem to be a little more confused as to why more tour pros don't, uh, adopt the RV life. So what can you tell us about that lifestyle?
0: We, we just love it, Chris. It's starting to, uh, especially out on the PGA Tour now, I know a lot of guys bought buses in the last year or two. So we've been doing it, uh, Brenda and I, for uh, 11 years now. I think we bought our first bus when I was 49. There's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you got to like to drive. And luckily, I like to drive. Uh, although like Bubba and Louis Eustazen and and those guys on the PGA tour have drivers, you know, they just fly in private and their bus is all set up for them. But that's not really, that's not really the true bus life. Uh, it's being out on the road and uh, having your dogs with you and, uh, and just planning uh, where you're going to go and where you're going to stop. And it's, it's, it's nice to have all your stuff in one place. Uh, you know, you don't have to pack and unpack and all the, all the other crap that
1: goes with flying. So it's uh uh we just really like it yeah i was gonna say it's got to be pretty draining I mean, more than draining you know just traveling every week going through airports and everything and always feeling like you're away from home so it's got i'm guessing there's a feeling of you know a home away from home it's actually a literal home you know you're taking on the road that just makes it a little bit feel not like you're traveling and not feeling that you know day-to-day grind of going in and out of airports unpacking packing and having all your stuff in one place is, is that fair to say oh for sure I think a few years ago
0: in 19, we were gone for four straight months and didn't, didn't miss being home once because you do have your own bed and your own clothes and, you know, everything. Uh, we've got two bathrooms on the bus, uh, which is, which is huge, you know, and plenty of storage. Uh, so it's just, uh, uh it, it is truly home on wheels and it, you just kind of feel like you're, uh, you're, you're, home every single week. So it, it definitely eases the, the stress of, of, you know, packing and unpacking and going to airports and flying and, all that other stuff that you know we've been doing for the thirty years prior to when I turned fifty.
1: Yeah, it's a very real thing, very real fatigue. You know, unpacking, packing, and you know, lugging golf clubs and places and things like that. So we got a lot to cover. On uh, it probably makes sense to start somewhere near the beginning and uh, how, especially you know, hearing how you were introduced to Jack Nicklaus at a very young age and how he was watching you uh, hit golf shots at a very young age. So what was it like for uh, for Jack Nicklaus to watch you play high school golf tournaments?
0: Oh, that was, uh, if he wasn't such a nice and cool guy, I'd have been way more nervous. But, uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, uh, my first 13 years. And then we moved down to North Palm beach when I was 13, uh, for my father's health reasons. And, uh, I immediately met, uh, Jackie jr. Uh, in, in junior golf in the summer of 73, uh, we're exactly the same age. So we played junior golf and high school golf against each other for, uh, five years and a lot of those times, uh, Jack uh, would come out and, and watch our match because I was number one on our team and he was number one on their team. So we would always play each other, and uh, I'm not sure he ever beat me. I don't think he did, but uh, I, I, I tried extra hard when Mr. Uh, Nichols was watching, and he was uh,
1: always had great things to say to me. At such a young age, to play in front of you know such a such a presence on the golf course, did it have any effect on you when you got to the big show? You know. Playing with Tiger Woods or playing in front of huge crowds or in big moments or other people that had a big presence—it sure didn't hurt. I know
0: that. You know, that's that is a lot of pressure for uh, for a, a, you know a 13 or 14 year old boy to to have uh, Jack Nicholas watching you play golf. So it certainly, I'm sure, helped as uh, as junior golf and high school golf went on. And then I uh, played two and a half years at University of Florida and and decided that it was it was time to turn pro. But I remember in my first PGA Tour event that I watched, uh, my older brother took me down to see the 1974 Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic. And of course, I watched Jack as much as I could, and uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I, I knew right then and there that uh, that, that was going to be my uh, my career. So uh that, that's pretty cool uh I just knew I was gonna gonna do this
1: was that a special degree program at the University of Florida the two and a half year degree I'm not that uh familiar with that I was, I was on
0: about the six-year degree program <laughs> and,
1: and I knew I wasn't gonna last that
0: long so uh, I I honestly uh really didn't have much intention of ever graduating unfortunately when I went to the University of Florida uh because I knew I was going to be a golf pro uh it, it was like I don't know why, but I just knew I was going to be successful, and and there were a lot of tough times. Don't get me wrong. Uh, my first five years of turning pro uh, were on again, off again. The tour, many tours. Uh, you know, scrounging for every dime I could find. Um, I had some help along the way, uh, but I, I would literally drive to seven different hotels to find one to save a, a dollar or two dollars a night. Uh, back in the early '80s. Yeah, it was a it was it was a grind, but you know I still I still had faith that I was going to uh, get over the hump, and I, I finally did.
1: Yeah, look at how guys come out on tour these days. You know, they I feel like they all most of them at least come out with very strong support systems, teams, agents, and all those things. What what was it like? You know, in the '80s, you know, trying to turn a, a college career into a professional career. I have to imagine it's pretty lonely out there at times. You know, especially if you're putting pennies together like you say you were on the road. Oh, definitely. Uh, it, it's. So different now than it was uh,
0: 40 years ago, back in the early 80s. You know, you rarely saw a guy, even if he was a great college player, uh, like Hal Sutton or Bobby Clampett or uh, Gary Hallberg. Uh, you know, they went on to have good careers on tour, but they didn't come right out of the chute uh, like these kids are today, like Victor Hovland and, you know, all these other young superstars that just come right out of the shoot from college and, uh, and think they're going to win on the PGA Tour. Uh, that, that was never a thought in the 80s. Uh, and it, it took a lot of us, uh, you know, four or five, six years to kind of get the hang of it and, and figure it out. But, uh, uh, you know, today, uh, look at this uh, 17-year-old high school junior, uh, one off the lead in the U.S. Women's Open. I, I just checked the scores. I mean, that, that that's amazing. If I played in the U.S. Open when I was 17, I, I promise you I wouldn't have been anywhere near the lead. I'd have been if you turned the paper upside down, I'd have been down on the other end. Uh, that's where I'd have been. So uh,
1: it's 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 just different these days. The kids are ready to go. Well, what was your path like to qualifying for the PGA Tour? I love asking you know guys from different generations how they how they made it on tour. I, I think I read that you were the youngest ever to qualify for the PGA Tour at that point. Is that right? I, I think I was. Yeah, uh, until
0: Ty Tryon was younger when he qualified. Uh, I think he was nineteen or twenty. I don't know what he was. I was twenty-one. Back in 1981, when I qualified, they had actually two tour schools, one in July and one in January. And I, I turned pro in January and then played mini tours for six months and then, uh, and then got my card at Disney World on the Palm Course in the summer of 81. And uh, just like that, all of a sudden, I was on the PGA Tour. They had 25 spots. You, know, you had to go through first stage, second stage, uh, like in the good old days. Uh, but <clears throat> the next five years, on again, off again, uh, I went to every single tour school. And uh, the, the times I finished between 125 and 150, I missed it, the tour school, but I still had conditional status because I finished in that area in the money list. And then the times I finished higher than 150, I actually qualified through the tour school. So. Uh, I, I actually had a, a, a PGA Tour status every single year from uh, 1981
1: on. Wow, that's that's jarring. Since 1981, you've had status, professional status at the highest level, PGA Tour champion Tour. That's it's kind of hard to grasp, but. When you got out on tour, did you feel like you belonged? I, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because I read your uh, interview you did with Jaime Diaz, you know, maybe about 20 years ago, uh, where he talked a little, told a story about Lanny Watkins, maybe kind of giving you a, a friendly jab, a little bit of a hard time from here and there. Uh, but I'm just wondering, like, it had to be a very intimidating, you know. There's a lot of intimidating personalities out there on tour in an environment that you're probably uncomfortable with going into, the, into at, the, at that age. What was that like?
0: Well, I, you know, Lanny kind of always made you feel like uh you know who the hell are you and what are you doing out (laughs) here
1: i could see that (laughs)
0: like you did you sneak Did you sneak through the gate with your clubs or uh, you know what's going on he kind of just had that persona about him and i always tried to as i got older in my career through my 40s when uh you know some of the young guys got on tour and qualified to to make it a, a note to go introduce myself and 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 uh and say hey uh, because, uh, yeah, Lanny, you know, Lanny was a little bit intimidating back in the early eighties. Uh, and he, you know, he was a major winner. He was a superstar. So, and I enjoyed watching him play. I'll tell you that, uh, the few times I think I got paired with him, it was, uh, it was a treat.
1: Yeah. There's a story you told about how, you know, he had the, uh, the pants without the back pockets on them that were all form fitting and you had wrinkled clothes and he kind of, Jabbed you a little bit about like this is what you got going on here.
0: Yeah, yeah, the whole the whole story. My my clothing, my uh, yeah, my clubs. I had crooked teeth. I didn't get my teeth fixed until uh, eighty eight, I think. So uh, yeah, i kind of long hair, curly long hair, and you know, visor. The the hair was curled up over my visor, and
1: uh, yeah, I was a I was a little rough looking. There, there's no doubt about it. Well, what changed? Because we're talking about you know bouncing back and forth between Q school and the one twenty six to one fifty to becoming one of the best players in the world. Something had to have changed in that time period, and this all happened you know within the eighties. By the end of the eighties, you're a major champion and uh, one of the top ten players in the world. What what changed?
0: Well, I I, I always had plenty of distance, you know, back in the days of uh, Woods and Bellatos and all that other stuff. Uh, and like every kid uh, in the seventies and eighties. Uh, you had to hit a hook to get it out there anywhere. So everybody hit a hook. And I, I had a pretty wicked hook, and sometimes it was pretty uncontrollable. So I was never a very good driver of the ball in terms of accuracy. So uh, I started to work with Peter Costas in, uh, early in 1984. And he said, Look, you've got plenty of distance, but we need to get you in the fairway. So he basically got me into a driver setup that, that I couldn't hook. Uh, I had That's when the metalwoods first came out. It was a little tiny metal, tailor-made metalwoods. that said metalwood on top. It had like six or seven degrees loft. It was a seven-degree head, but I, it even looked like it had less loft than that. And a super stiff titanium shaft. He said, okay, try to hook this, and I couldn't get it in the air. So then he said, okay, move, move the ball up a little bit in your stance. Kind of stay behind it and clear your left hip and see what happens. And I hit this just towering slight fade. I mean, it was a little more to it than that, but uh, he, he got me to uh, take the left side of the golf course out of play and just do nothing but hit fades off the tee. And I pretty much played my entire career like that. So I think that was really the start of when everything in my game started to click. When I started hitting a lot more fairways, uh, my iron game got better as well. Uh, I was always really good around the greens with my short game. So... Uh, I, I think that was then. Uh, finally, in in '86, uh, every, everything pretty much clicked, and I just uh, started playing some really good golf in '86.
1: Yeah, you hear a lot of phrases about you know guys that hit fades. You know, faders eat fillets. You know, you can talk to a fade, you can't talk to a hook. And you know, you get good hitting a draw, you get great hitting a fade. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I think I have a decent understanding of understand of you know why that why it is beneficial to move it, you know, if you're a right-hander, move it to your right. But how would you describe that? I would say,
0: you know, you look at all the best drivers now in the world, not not counting DeChambeau, but like Dustin Johnson and Brooks Koepka and Justin Thomas, uh, they, they all faded off the tee. And, and it's just easier to hit it straight and control your hands and your swing when you're not flipping your, uh, your, your wrist at the ball at impact like you have to do when you hit a draw. Uh, it's just, uh, you're just going to hit more fairways. That's all there is to it. Um, even today when I try to hit a draw, I, I hit it further, but I don't know where it's going to start off and, and where it's going to end. I mean, I might hit a pull draw. I might hit a push draw or the, or a straight one, who knows? Uh, but when I hit a fade, I, I know pretty much for sure where it's going to start out and where it's going to end. And I think that's, that's the easiest part, uh, about, uh, these guys now. And they, again, distance isn't an issue. Dustin can can probably hit it twenty or thirty yards further every single drive if he wanted to, but he just sticks with his uh, his fairway shot, you know,
1: which is still three twenty in the air. Uh, you know, number one in the world. I say this every chance I get, you know, on this podcast, but you know, obviously distance is a huge theme on tour, and these guys are hitting at a mile, but they're way straighter than a lot of people give them credit for. Just because their fairway hit number isn't very high, but they're within corridors, they're hitting in the general direction of where they need it to go, and. Uh, some of them, a lot of them are leaving something in the tank. Yeah, they do. Yeah, that's the scary part. Well, you touched on it there, you know, but in 86, things changing. And if I can highlight it here, you made, you made $29,660 in 1984, and that was your highest earning year of anything between 81 and 85. Then you earned $155,086 the first year that you won, then $522,087. And then you're kind of off and running. So how much how much does life change when you know you've struggled on the road for a very long period of time, and now you're actually making money?
0: Quite a bit. I bought my <laughs> first house sure. in Bear Lakes in West Palm Beach in '87. Actually, uh, met my first wife out in Phoenix at the Phoenix Open, where I finished third in '87. Uh, we got married eight months later. Next year, or in '89, won Phoenix again, and then won the LA open and then went right down and bought uh, a BMW for Cheryl, my first wife and a Porsche for myself. So yeah, I went from living with my parents, you know, trying to grind out mini tours uh, and a few years to to having all these luxuries and, you know, I couldn't always afford them. uh, But my motto has always been uh, if you want something, buy it and worry about
1: paying for it later. That's not really a good motto, as I've gotten older. That's why I, I can't tell if you're saying this with, you know, with pride or with a little bit of regret of how you've handled this over the years.
0: I kind of I did okay for myself, but uh, yeah, I'm still living by that by that motto, and I haven't haven't played in a golf tournament in, in eight months, so. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not making any money.
1: So how's it work? You know, once you maybe get used to a different lifestyle, and you know you have some success in a in a period of time, but then you start to you know maybe struggle at a diff- at different periods, and you're missing cuts, and you're spending money and traveling, and just wondering if you you know kind of how you manage that flow, uh, if you experienced any of that in, in points in your career.
0: My entire career, um, I, I've I've always worried about money and then next thing you know you, you win a tournament and the most money i ever won in a tournament was uh, nine hundred and fifty thousand, i think uh, but then all of a sudden you know then you forget about money for a year and then you know you buy another car you do this or you do that or you, you don't play very good for a while and then all of a sudden you're like man i need to make some money back then our purses were a million dollars i remember when las vegas was the first tournament to be a million dollar purse and that was I mean, that was, everybody's like, wow, we've hit the big time. We're playing for a million dollars this week, you know, 180 grand for first. Uh, and now I saw the purse at the Memorial is 9.3 million. You know, every single purse is like at least 8 million, it seems like. So now that now all these young guys, the the, the young superstars, the Joaquin Niemans and the Victor Hovlins and uh, I, I guarantee you they're not too worried about cash. Uh, it, it's just... They're playing for so much, and they're making so much. It's it's a, it's a different ball game.
1: Well, and you're of the age where you know the, the arrival of Tiger Woods pretty much dissects your career. Not quite right in the middle, but you know you played for a long period of time before purses just grew astronomically from you know 1996 to 2000. And, you know, guys love to tell stories of how the PGA Tour used to be different. The party atmosphere was maybe a little bit different. Guys would, you know, be in bars till late at night and, you know, when they had morning tea times and stuff like that. And it is not like that currently on the PGA Tour. Can you can you pinpoint when you started to feel like that kind of environment shift out on tour?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you, you nailed it right on the right on the head, right in between ninety six and two thousand, uh, the Tiger Woods effect. And, you know, we all watched it in amazement. And, but the next thing you know, you know, our purses are going up and uh, we're playing for a lot more money. You know, we're playing for $5 million tournaments and uh, uh, everybody had a pretty big smile on their face, you know, and uh, everybody my age will be the first to tell you it was uh, Tiger Woods was the reason why.
1: A quick break here to check in with our friends at Whoop, whoop.com. You can use promo code NOLAYINGUP for 15% off all offerings on their website. You've heard us talk a lot about this product. You see it now. They, they've got live Whoop data being broadcast on PGA Tour events showing, you know, when players' heart rates spike. You've seen it on our Wild World of Golf when Neil's running across the range at Colonial, how much of a heart rate spike it gives I love uh, just seeing how what what normal everyday activities have, what kind of effect it has on my heart rate and, and the strain that I'm putting on my body. If you're ever really confused as to why some days you're tired, some days you can't figure out why you can't get your energy up and you know other days you're feeling great, a whoop is a great way to tell you exactly how rested your body is, how much more sleep you maybe need. You're probably not sleeping enough. Uh, this thing has made me change some habits in my life. It makes me get to bed on time, it makes me shut the phone off don't just mindlessly scroll my phone before I go to bed cuz that keeps me up later keeps my heart rate elevated when you really want that heart rate to take a dip overnight and increase your heart rate variability again all measurable stuff that the whoop gives you it drastically improves your quality of life in many different ways and haven't even gotten into all the personalized way it can help you with your training so whoop.com you can use promo code no laying up 15% off your subscription there uh, again a, pa- a product we're very passionate about and we appreciate their support of our show whoop.com promo code no laying up let's get back to mark Calcavecchia. On the Tiger note, I know you guys have had a relationship. Uh, you know, in the past, you've played Ryder Cups together, played practice rounds together. You know, I'm curious as to what your current status of your guys' relationship is, and and uh, what the origination of that relationship is. And I wonder if one of you can just speak on the cat for a minute.
0: Yeah, we uh, I, I first met Tiger um, when I started working with Butch Harmon in '94. So I worked with Butch from '94 to 04. and of course, uh, Tiger I think started working with him probably about pretty much the same time. I think when he was like 14. So as the years went by, when when Tiger got old enough to go to Vegas by himself, uh, a lot of times we we had practice sessions together with Butch, and we'd go out to dinner that night or, or do some gambling or, or whatever. And you know we got to know each other really well. And then I'm never I'm not a real big practice round guy, but of course in majors you you got to play a few of them. So I always played my practice rounds with Tiger because I like to go as soon as you can see. I, I liked to the tee-off then, and, and Tiger liked that too because he got at least nine holes in without people bothering him. So we always played at the crack of dawn on Tuesdays and Wednesdays with majors. You know, we were good friends. Uh, time went on, and we were Ryder Cup teammates. We we, we played a, I talked Curtis Strange into pairing us uh, in alternate shot, and, you know, Curtis said to me, well, I think you're in the 2002 Ryder Cup. Curtis said, I think you, you're better at best ball. I said, Curtis, I'm 4-0 and in alternate shot. Uh, in, in my three previous uh, Ryder Cups, and he had no idea. So, of course, I played with Tiger, and I didn't play very well, and Tiger didn't putt very well, and we lost 2-1. Uh, and one. So and that was kind of a bummer, but I, I gave Tiger grief about that for, for a long time. I think he got tired of hearing it. He actually missed three straight four-foot putts on 11, 12, and 13, and then half shanked a 9-iron on a par 3 in the next hole. And uh, so I blame him for that loss. Um, but anyway, you know, nowadays, um, when I was a member of the medalist and Tiger just joined, I saw him out there some, you know, he said, Hey, didn't have, didn't have really a whole lot to say, you know, just love being down in Jupiter and, uh, live five miles from each other. And, uh, you know, I never, I never see him, which, you know, it's, that's okay. But I, I, I gave him the opportunity to, you know, say, Hey, and, and in our last house, we had a two lane bowling alley and. Actually, Elon brought the kids over to bowl once and I said, you know, they're welcome to come bring welcome to bring them over and bowl anytime you want. And he never took me up on that. So, uh,
1: you know, we just kind of drifted apart a little bit. There's a story again, this is from Jaime Diaz that, you know, you hit a range ball or threw a range ball in his direction at the 2001 Masters that had something written on it. Do you remember that story or do you remember what was on there? I can't remember what I wrote, though. It was something with an expletive. It's it's unclear as to what it was, but I was, I was just curious if you remembered. I know it's been like 20 years. It, yeah, I do remember that now. It, it, yeah, it was an expletive. And, uh, you know, it, it, he's
0: very funny. When you play practice rounds together and you're walking along with him, he's kind of muttering under his breath, and he'll, you know, say, screw you, Calc, or in a, a little bit rougher way, uh, but – Uh, It was just funny. And that's, that's what he does, you know, with Justin Thomas and and all the guys that he's friends with now. Uh, He he has gotten a lot better uh, in the last five, seven years or so with
1: his uh, uh, with the media and and talking to people and uh, and stuff. So on the other side of that, you also played practice rounds and matches with Phil and, you know, there's a time period when Tiger and Phil aren't necessarily the best of friends and, I know everyone's got a Mickelson betting story of some kind, but what was uh, what was that like? Right, yeah. Phil, Phil and Tiger never played practice rounds
0: together, so if I if I wasn't playing with Tiger, Phil would try to drum up some sort of uh, money game with uh, John Houston or uh, John would always play or uh, uh, or Ken Green would always play or you know whoever. We we played for enough. We played for a thousand bucks, you know, like straight match play. And you can press for half on 18 if you're, if you're down or you or you're lost. Uh, and then Phil and I played at Augusta, and uh, I, I beat him. And then we had lunch, and he says, uh, let's, go, let's go play the back nine for, for a dime. I want my money back. I said, okay. And I, I dusted him off again. So that might have been the only two times I beat him, but at least I got him twice that day. And, and you had to pay by the next day, cash.
1: Otherwise, it was a hundred dollar fine. Yeah, I was going to say you got to carry that much cash on you. That, that has to be paid by cash. There's no checks or anything like that. Oh, you have to go to yeah, bring a check the next day and
0: uh, and go to finance if you if, <laughs> if you didn't have enough to pay up. Uh, you, you you better get a check quick and or go to the bank or do something. But yeah, you, you had to
1: you had to pay fast. What's the difference in a putt that, say, you know, the difference is maybe $100,000 in, in earnings, like on the 18th green of, of a tournament, versus one that means you would lose $10,000 to another player? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at?
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, it's definitely the, the the putt in a match. Right. Uh, you know, because it's your money and you don't want to lose. Uh, you know, we all we all blow putts in the last hole that cost us a bunch of money. Uh, and I don't know if the, if the kids today – you know, if they make a bogey or a double on 18 to go from third to eighth or tenth or something, you know, I don't know if they look at the, the paper and try to figure out how much that double cost them, but, but I always did. So, and it's just it's part of the deal. Or you might hold out a bunker shot and say, oh, that, that, that lucky 40-footer I made on 18, you know, won me an extra 50 grand or something. So, it, it goes both ways. But, uh, yeah, it, when you're playing a match, and, and even if it's for two or 300 or whatever, uh, the difference, uh, you know, you've,
1: you're I'm you're totally nervous. There's no question. All right, so you've just birdied the 18th hole at Royal Troon at the 1989 Open Championship. Uh, you are headed to a playoff. Uh, what was the conversation like you had with it was somebody, an official or someone that uh, surprised you in terms of what you were in store for when it came to the playoff? I had no idea.
0: Uh, it was the first year that they instituted the four-hole playoff. And, you know, at the start of the week, you're not really – plan on what you're going to do in a playoff. You know, that's so far thinking ahead that you don't allow yourself to do it. Uh, and then even the last round, I was I was quite a ways behind Wayne Grady. I made a couple buggies in the middle of the round, and Wayne was playing great. And then finally, uh, when, I, when I flew that chip in the hole on number 12 from left of the green, after that I hit every shot great and birdied 16 and 18 to tie Greg Norman. And I knew I had to birdie 18 to tie him. But Wayne still had five holes left, and he still had a, a two-shot lead. So he ended up bogeying both par 3s, 14 and 17. And uh, next thing I know, we're in a playoff. So I asked the guy, the, the RNA guy, I said, I assume we're going back to 18? He says, no, we're going to 1. I said, 1? I said, that's a weird hole to have a sudden-death playoff on. Yeah, you know, it's the easiest hole in the course. I, I just I couldn't believe it. And then he says, no, we're playing 1, 2, 17, and 18. I was like, oh, thank God. Uh, so of course, Greg birdied one and two again, and I I made a putt on two. But uh, uh, yeah, as it as it turned out, uh, I had no idea of the four hole playoff. But it definitely relaxed me. Uh, it, it it helped it helped my little brain a lot, knowing that uh, I had I had a little bit of time to, to try to uh, you know win the thing.
1: So you gained some valuable experience uh, at Troon on the 72nd hole that helped uh, drive some decision-making on on the final playoff hole, the fourth playoff hole uh, that maybe one of your playing partners didn't have the same strategy. And I wonder if you can tell us that story. Right. On uh, my 72nd hole,
0: uh, last hole of regulation, I hit a really good drive. I mean, not my all-time career best, but I hit it really good. And when I got up there, it was about five yards short of that, little uh coffin bunker. Uh and then I I knew I needed to birdie the hole and uh I got nervous. I actually backed off of it. And I rarely backed off of shots. So I backed off of it, took a deep breath, and then just stiffed an eight iron in there about three feet uh to tie Greg at the time. Well once we got back out there in the playoff, uh, you know, of course I realized that, you know, if I kill one, especially as pumped up as I am, uh, I, I can easily hit it in that bunker. And so that was the reason I kind of fanned. A, I, back then, I never hit a three-wood off the tee. It was either a driver or a one-iron. Kind of fanned my drive out in the right rough. For that reason, I was I was worried that I might hit it in the bunker. And then when Greg Norman teed off, he just blasted one right down the middle of the slight fade. And I was standing on the left side of the tee, and Bruce Edwards says, you know, beauty, Greg. And they quit watching it. They just started walking. I stood on the side of the tee, and I just kept looking at this ball. And I thought to myself, if this thing kicks a little bit right, uh, he's going to catch the end of that that bunker, and sure enough, I stood there. I watched it was rolling and rolling, kicked a little right, and I saw it catch it by about a foot and roll up the lip and roll back down. I had pretty good eyesight back then, and uh, he had no idea. He didn't know till he got up there that he was in the bunker. Uh, and then when I hit that five iron from 201 yards, uh, it, it looked like it was two feet from the hole or three feet. Uh, so Greg thought he had to try to do something uh, heroic, uh, and he you know, he ended up hitting it into the cross bunker about 50 yards short of the green and then hit that one in the clubhouse. And, uh, and that was that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was still seven feet. Uh, you know, I'm sure he wishes he would have just pitched out and tried to make par and, you know, at least maybe, maybe make it, uh, for the win. But, uh, uh, it looked like it was really close.
1: So you returned to the Open Championship the next year at St Andrews, and I'll, tell us about a, a function, a pre-tournament function you're you're attending that maybe maybe didn't go so well.
0: Well, it went it <laughs> went well, but I just I got roasted for being late, which uh, I, I didn't know I was late. It, the, the invitations that said seven thirty for eight, so it, and to me that means like seven fifty nine, uh, but I guess you're supposed to be there before that. 7:30 or 7:15 or something. But anyway, uh, again, we had some friends that came over to St. Andrews and, uh, right before I had to bring the uh, Claret jug back, we were drinking champagne out of it and then realized it was, it was getting kind of, you know, it was already like a quarter to eight. So I just gave it a quick, quick rinse out in the, in the sink and, uh, brought it back and got there kind of late and everybody gave me a bad look. And, uh, uh, yeah, I guess they weren't too happy that this, the clear jug still had some champagne and water in it mixed together. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, ended up getting, uh, roasted in, in the, in the tabloids the next day or two, you know, defending champion late to the, you know, past champions dinner or whatever. So it was, uh, it was actually kind of funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll roast you for pretty much anything right. over there. So yeah. <laughs> So what's it like, you know, for the top players to go over and uh, quickly adjust at the competitive level, adjust from, you know, hitting high, normal-ish shots on the US PGA Tour to playing Lynx golf with so many more elements and different turf, different conditions, you know, just a whole bunch of different things you got to think about and deal with. Is that, is that something that took a while to learn? Yes and no. It, it's, look, every,
0: every PGA Tour player that's ever played on the PGA Tour has great feel and great imagination uh and great uh you know sight of what they want to try to do uh now sometimes you, even if you've never been to scotland before and it's rock hard you get out there and you got, you you just say to yourself well you know i'm i got 180 to the hole and 150 to the front i'm in the rough i'm gonna hit a little bit of a flyer i probably got to land this 20 yards short of the green so you just you hit a wedge. And you just watch it boing, 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 bounce and roll on the green. And you go, well, you know, that worked out pretty good. So you, you just kind of take a guess a little bit, but then you, you get a little bit of a feel for it. And when I, my first Open was 87 at Muirfield, uh, and I had, a, I had a great time. I think I finished 10th or 12th, somewhere around there. And I said, I just, I just love this kind of golf. I, I, I love the look. I love the atmosphere. The crowds were amazing. Uh, the course was amazing. And then, of course, in 88, I think I shot 76-84 and hated it. I was like, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, but then uh, and now I actually really love Royal that, that was a year uh, at Royal in 88. And uh, uh, my first practice round at uh in 89, I was really playing well. I'd won probably, I think, five tournaments in about an eight-month period, counting Bank of Boston, Australian Open uh phoenix la something else Uh, maybe a team thing in the in december but i I was just playing really well and my first practice round i just loved royal throne every hole i liked uh and and was just and the weather was perfect all week so it was just one of those deals where uh I, i played great and uh you know
1: and got uh got a few great breaks to go along with it Well, and what a great tournament to win! You know, in terms of a place you can always go back to, or for a long period of time, you can go back to and continue to compete in, because it's you know a little different than Augusta, which has become very long and extremely demanding off the tee. Yet, Open Championship courses, you know, inspire a a more creative style of play and a style of play that you know helps you know players later in their career you know still be able to compete somewhat relatively to the to the rest of the field. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, Actually, uh, a few years ago at Carnoustie. Um, it was, it was awesome. The fairways were, were faster than the greens. And if there was ever a setup that I, I could or should have played well on, it was, it was that one. Uh, and I'm missing the cut well, I doubled, I finished bogey double to miss the, miss the cut by, I think three or four, but I made one birdie in 36 holes. And that was from a half an inch on that easy par five in the back nine. And my bunker shot hit the pin and hung on the lip uh so in other words i didn't i didn't come close to making a putt over three feet and 36 holes uh so it was that was frustrating but to answer your question yeah that that kind of set up uh my last open that's another whole story it'll be next year at st andrews uh it was supposed to be last year at royal st george's um because you can play up until you're 60 uh, but of course covid canceled that um this year i, I I had my back operated on in January and haven't played since I had my L four and L five fuse together. So I wrote a nice big old long letter, uh, to the RNA and, uh, Martin slumbers, the, the chief or the captain said, well, I gotta, I gotta bring it up to my membership committee, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'll get back to you. And sure enough, uh, they got back to me at about a month and said, uh, we really try to take care of our past champions. And I know this has been a tough uh, go around for you with COVID and then having your back operated on. uh, And I said, you know, my family has never, my kids have never been to St. Andrews. And um, it it was, it was almost a tearjerker of a letter. And sure enough, uh, uh, they, they, they allowed me to granted me to play my last uh, open, even, even though I'll be 62 at uh, St. Andrews next year. So I can't
1: wait for that. Well, I was going to say it's no wonder you you know you hated it Lithum when you missed the cut in '88, but I see your T nine at, at the age of fifty two at the twenty twelve Open Championship at Lithum. It's amazing how that works, though. You know,
0: it, it is. Uh, uh, you, you know, that's a, the answer I give all my amateurs every week. You know, when they ask you, you know, what's your favorite course on tour, and I usually say wherever I wherever I went at. You, you go to Augusta, and if you, you know you get on the wrong side of the humps and you don't play very good and you miss the cut. You just, you seriously can't wait to get out of there. Uh, I always said about Augusta, it was my favorite place to get to and my favorite place to leave uh, because it was kind of frustrating. So, but, but all golfers feel the same way. You know, if they have a good tournament and play well, they, they love the place and can't wait to get back next year. And if they play terrible and miss a cut, you know, especially if it happens three or four years in a row, then, then you just kind of say, well, forget that place.
1: Uh, you know, I'm going to go go where I like. Well, on the Augusta note, you know, for at least my generation or at least myself personally, I, I know who the champions are for going back many, many years, but I don't know the, all the close calls, you know, so just reading and, and hearing about your close call at Augusta in 1988, uh, I wonder if you can take us, uh, take us to that week and what you remember about the, you know, the end of that tournament.
0: Yeah. I, I, I basically had my right arm in the jacket or so I thought Sandy that we were, it was tough. It, that I think, uh. Sandy only shot seven under, and I think I was second at six under. Uh, it, was, it was windy. The greens were hard and, and fastest they can get. Uh, and it was just a, it was a tough week. And uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I parred the last uh, two or three holes. I made a good up and down on 18 from just short of the green. And uh, at the time, I had a one-shot lead. Uh, but right when I finished 18, Sandy made it from off the back of the 16th green. Uh, which I later found out when they took me to the Butler cabin and they showed me a replay of it. I said, watch this putt Sandy makes. You know, he had to hit it straight left and looped it down the hill and made it. <clears throat> and then uh, right when I got in the cabin, he says, uh, Sandy just hit it in the lip of the fairway bunker on 18. Like really pretty close to the lip. I said, hmm, okay. So I sat there for a minute and I thought, well, he'll he'll find a way to make par. So just get ready for a playoff. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I was going to win right then. I, I've, I was, you know, thinking he, he was going to make par somehow. And uh, I needed to get ready to go down number 10. And uh, when he climbed in there and I saw the lie, it was sitting super clean. And uh, back then, nobody in the world hit it as high as Sandy Lyle. Uh, and he picked the seven iron, didn't touch a blade of sand. And, you know, his eyeballs were as big as they can get when he's watching this thing fly. And I said, oh, no, he hit a great shot. And it landed just past the hole, rolled up the ridge, and then rolled back down So about 12 feet. And uh, I knew he was going to make it. I told everybody he's going to make this. He was one of the best putters in the world at that time too. And uh, sure enough, he made it. So I, I handled everything really well. Did, did all my press and stuff, and uh, went back to the house and really didn't think much much about it. We had a we had some friends there here from North Palm Beach. Uh, we had actually two houses side by side. And just had a party and a bunch of beers and a great night. And what I told the press was, well, you know, it's just disappointing. I would have loved to have won, but this is only my second Masters. I'm going to have about another 20 go-arounds at it at least. And uh, I'll win this tournament one day. So that's what I said in 88. Of course, I never did win it. But uh, uh, I had a few other other top tens. In 01, I, I think I tied for fourth. I had a chance that year.
1: Well, you know, you're known over the years for being a very honest and direct person. And, you know, I think sometimes when you read, you know, some headlines you've made over the years, uh, it it can be kind of just a bit jarring just to hear it so directly to say, like, you know, flat out, you think you could have been better. You just didn't want to work hard enough at it. Uh, I find that honesty refreshing, but at the same time, I, I I just want to kind of hear you speak to, you know, what what that means when you say, I think it makes a lot more sense when you, when you hear an answer like that in a, in a more long form, you know, presentation.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it's true. I mean, uh, well, I don't know if I could have been number one, but my first wife, Cheryl, thought that I could have. And I think I was, I spent a decent amount of time in the top 10 in the world, uh, around six or seven or eight or something, but. Uh, she says, "You know, you could be number one in the world if you if you worked harder." And I said, "I don't care about being number one in the world. I'd rather come home and 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 spend two days with my kids and just sit and play with them and and see my friends and and hang out with my kids." Uh, and that's kind of the way I always was. You know, I, I certainly worked hard enough to to be a good player, but I, I didn't have what it took mentally or physically to to do all that work to, to get to the, to get to the top. It, it just was never that important to me for some reason. Uh, you know, I love winning golf tournaments and I should have won more than I did. But, uh, as far as, uh,
1: the world rankings, I, I, I never really paid attention to them too much. Well, it's really interesting to marry that with the fact that you made, I think 761 career PGA tour starts. Like, it's not like your work ethic wasn't there. I would call that a pretty strong work ethic, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe by conserving some energy when you were home, maybe you prevented yourself from getting burned out. I mean, you're, you're talking, you know, 229 starts on the Champions Tour or something like that. We're talking about 1,000 tour events, you know, over 40 years. I, I think that there's maybe, there's probably something there, no?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I, Yeah, I, I, I went through stretches where I played a lot and then I, you know, I took some time off. But I kind of enjoyed having the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Uh, as far as my schedule. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of figuring figuring out what's best for you and what's best for your career. So, yeah, I, that's a lot of tournaments. And I, as I sit here today, I'm, I'm like eight tournaments short of a 1,000 total, counting the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. And when you think about how many golf tournaments that is to, to play in, it, it's, it's a kind of a frightening amount of, amount of golf tournaments. And how fast it's gone by is the other thing that's 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 – kind of blowing my mind. I, I can't believe I played that much and have traveled that much and, you know, been back and I played in 31 opens, uh, you know, and all the places I've been, it's just kind of hard to believe I did all that.
1: Yeah. I, I just Googled it. Mark Brooks has the most career PGA tour starts with 803, which is, you know, I, I knew you had to be up there somewhere, but uh, I'm curious, I tagged you in on it on Twitter when uh, when we posted our, our 1991 deep dive podcast that we did that you participated in last year. It gave us some great answers and, and great insight. You know, I, we already talked, obviously, in great detail about what happened to you at Q, and I was, I was just curious if 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 listening back to that would be something that, you know, at all would be therapeutic or something you would want to avoid. And, you know, in all the research I did leading up to that interview and everything and, and leading up to this, you, you know, your answers about that day are, are, are similar and you've always face the music on all that and and i'm just super curious as to you know how you marry the the you know the fact that you had a great week the fact that the u.s team won and this this thing that is you got to be something you're asked about all the time and whether or not you're at peace with it at terms with it, or what your current relationship is you know with that whole story arc you know constantly getting asked about it and here i am asking you about it for a second time
0: yeah no it's i'm fine with it uh, i really am it's uh, i remember it like it was yesterday and and I watched a lot of the PGA a few weeks ago, and uh, first of all, I thought it was fantastic that Phil won. I think everybody was cheering for him. Uh, that, that was that's quite an accomplishment at, at his age. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I got I got a few outs for uh, for my shot on 17, and uh, and some grief on Twitter for it. Uh, guys calling him the Shank, and I said, Well, hold on a minute. It wasn't a Shank. It was a You know, I don't know what I said. I was a a smothered, de-lofted, get way ahead of it, choke job of a shot. Uh, I I just tried to hit it so low. I just got so far ahead of it and just smothered it right in the ground, basically. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that wasn't good. And then, you know, what a lot of people forget is I still had a two-footer to win the match. Uh, You know, if it would have been earlier in the round to tie a hole, I'm sure Monty would have given it to me but it's to win the match. And of course I missed it. And then I hit two really good shots on 18, but I, I hit a three iron just over the green and that's, that's the worst place you can hit it. I, I should have uh, taken one less and just tried to kind of get anywhere on the green and two putt and get out of there. But, uh, any rate, it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was shaken up about it afterwards. There's no doubt. I went out on the beach and bawled my eyes out and, and you know you know, remember earlier in the, in the, in the, our podcast or our talk that I said that, you know, a lot of golfers almost every golfer on the PJ tour has a, a, a feel or a feeling or, a, a you know, great imagination and stuff. I just, I just knew, or I had a feeling that that half a point that I should have act, you know, the whole point I should have won instead of, instead of having the match, it was going to come down to that. And, and sure enough of it did, uh, when Bernhard had that five footer on the last hole for them to win. And, and, uh, you know, somehow he missed it. I was on my knees out in the fairway with Payne Stewart. He had his arm around me. And then all of a sudden I heard the crowd erupt and he jumped up and started hugging me. We won, we won, we won. And then I, I, I basically don't remember a thing after that.
1: Yeah. And I remember, you know, the uplifting part of the story that you told as well is all the letters you got from people, you know, in San Antonio the next week and, and the, the support you got from your playing partners. And if you if you do listen back to it, you'll hear that support from your teammates, you know, in, in saying what a, a tremendous effect you had on the team. And Dave Stockton, your captain to this day, says he doesn't think they we would have run won the Ryder Cup or you guys would have won the Ryder Cup if you hadn't gotten that five up lead. And and you know, every golfer at every level has done something at some point that they just say, I can't believe I just did that. That's the only thing I I couldn't have done. And yet you had to go through that on, you know, the biggest stage in, in golf. And and I'm just, I, I don't know if it's something that, you know, I'm curious if you feel like you've recovered from it or if, or if it took a while to recover from or if it affected you in professional golf after that at all or in other future Ryder Cups.
0: No, it, it's, I, I've gotten over it completely. And here's why I shouldn't have taken it so hard. Like you just said, everybody at some point in their career completely screws up a tournament they and, and doesn't win when they should have uh and i should have won that match and i didn't and i just took it really hard and i was just scared to death that it was going to cost the us the ryder cup that we needed to win so desperately uh and you know it was too much for me to handle but i should have handled it better and i'm kind of mad at myself that i didn't but uh i've i'm an emotional guy i've always been emotional i cry sometimes when i screw up a tournament and go back to the room and try to figure out why uh, and I'm sure a lot of other guys do too. So what Dave Stockton said was great. He said, you know, I mean, Cal got everybody fired up when they saw he was four or five up uh, and kind of sent a good vibe all the way back through the other matches and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I did, I did get two and a half points that week. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, that, that, was, that, was, that was pretty good. And it was, and it was good enough. So in the end, uh, it, it was all good.
1: So I got this from uh, from someone, and I think you're probably going to figure it out pretty easily who I got this from. But uh, something about a story of you know, an especially painful kick, and, and uh, you hit some fixed object that may have caused you quite a uh, somewhat serious injury, and I'm wondering if you can guess who I got that from as well.
0: I've kicked a few things in my career, but I, the one that hurt the most was in uh, 1987, uh, PGA behind the 13th green. Uh, I... I three-putted there it was 110 degrees out as hot as it can get in in palm beach gardens florida in the summer you know i was, I was playing at home and i really wanted to play well and i screwed up the 13th hole i probably three-putted or something and just decided to kick the tv tower the the metal pole uh on the tv tower and and yeah of course i i broke my my toe and that this was the first round and uh i could barely walk it was it was I had to cut the end of my shoe out. Uh, and I, I told my mom, I said, I got a WD. There's no way I can walk 18 holes. And she was so mad at me for kicking the TV tower and, and, and break, breaking my toe that, uh, she said, I don't care if you got to crawl around the course you're, you're playing. <laughs> so yeah, good old mom. She was, she was pretty mad at me about that one, but yeah, I, I've kicked a few things. I wish I wouldn't have uh, in, in my day. Uh, that's for sure. Well, do you know who, uh, who told me
1: to ask you that? Uh, no. Ken Green, maybe? No, it was, was Faxon. Yeah. Oh, Fax. Yeah. Well, well, what's something that, you know, looking back on your career, what what's something you would tell a younger version of yourself or, you know, said a different way? What's something you would have maybe done differently?
0: I really wouldn't have done anything differently. I I definitely would have uh, taken things a little bit uh, uh, lighter. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I was a little bit too intense, I think, with uh, w- what happened to me on the golf course, uh, especially if, if it turned out bad. Uh, I just, I really, uh, I wouldn't say I brought it home and, and, and kept it with me all night, but, you know, sometimes I was pretty grumpy for, for several hours after a round. And, and I've actually learned that from a lot of these younger kids that I'm, and, you know, I know they get mad and they're, they're upset with the way they finished or something, but you know, they, they just drop it and move, move along. And, uh, I, I wish I'd have been better at doing that.
1: I'm always curious what, what guys' motivations are to, you know, continue playing professional golf for so long. You know, it's, a, it's the one sport you can play professionally for 40-plus years or whatever it's been. Is it competition? Is it, you know, is it desire to still be out on the road? What, what keeps you going? Yeah,
0: you know, a couple of things. Uh, the fourth break that we had last year from, from COVID when uh, we all had five months off that we didn't really want off. During that period, I, I didn't play for two months you know, there was no, no reason to really. And then I, I started playing in practice and I really missed competing in tournaments. And then I thought to myself, well, this, this settles any thought I had of, had of retiring because I'm, I'm, I was bored stiff, basically. I really was bored. You know, and then I see guys like Bernhard Langer, who's motivating at 63 years of age, what he's, what he's still doing on our tour. You know, and I've been battling back issues and, and that's, that's when I decided to, after I had COVID in September and then at my back spasm set in again in in October at a tournament in carry uh, North Carolina. And I said, I- I've got to get my back fixed. Uh, I'm just tired of this. And, uh, so then I had the, uh, I had the surgery January 4th, five months ago today. And, uh, it, it's been a lot harder than I thought it'd be uh, recovering from this. so I, I think I've got a few more months but I still want to play. I'm, I'm tired of watching it on TV. I, I want to get back out there. They're, they're one of my favorite places at the Champions Tour this week in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I love Des Moines, Iowa and I wish wish we were there in our bus right now playing in the tournament. so just those feelings alone you know make me want to get back out there and, and keep playing for at least another four or five years and, and that's right now that's my goal.
1: I think that's really freaking cool. I mean, we're talking about 41, 40 year, whatever it is, you know, year grind and you're dying to get back out there. That's, that's awesome.
0: We're so lucky to be able to do it. I mean, yeah. you know, you look at some of these, a lot of these other sports and they, they just can't, they've got nothing to do. And, uh, we're, we're so lucky, uh, to have our tour that we have and, uh, uh and to play and compete on a, on a weekly
1: basis. It's a blast. Well you mentioned COVID there. You had you had quite a bout with COVID it sounds like. I'm wondering if you could tell us about what your what that experience was like. Yeah, it was it
0: was it was rough. Uh I, I didn't like it. Uh, in fact, uh I got to a point when I was in the hospital for a, a day that uh I thought this, this 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 might be it. I felt that bad. I was just like I mean, I just started praying to God. I said, "God, I can't go this way. Can I? This is not how it's going to end for me, is it?" And uh it was that bad. So, uh, yeah, I felt awful. And, uh, finally, uh, got the right meds and, uh, and, and started feeling better a couple days uh, after that hospital visit. Uh, but yeah, and my, and my brother, my older brother actually had it worse than I did. He was in the hospital for six days on a ventilator, the whole deal. So, uh, it, it was, uh, he was, I know he
1: was scared too. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a nasty virus. Let's, I'll tell you that. Well, this is one of the few questions I, I don't have a uh, an answer that I'm expecting. I'm I'm just curious mainly to, mainly to pull on you being one of the more honest people that we have out in the game and kind of looking at what's happening with uh, with Bryson and Brooks uh, on the PGA Tour in terms of feuds. I wonder if you ever had any feuds yeah. that you could tell us about in your career or, or anything you you know about. You can name names or not name names if you want, but I, I was just curious to ask that.
0: Yeah, that that'll be interesting to see how that goes at the Ryder Cup with those two. They might have to they might have to have separate locker rooms and team rooms for those two or something. You know yes and no i I mean there were there were players that that irritated the heck out of me uh that i hated playing with uh but it wasn't anything that you know i I couldn't stand it was just uh and there's still a few guys that i'm not going to name any names sorry but uh yeah there's there's guys that that i i kind of hope i don't get paired with on a a weekly basis and i'm sure there's a a ton of guys that don't want to get paired with me either so it, it, it it goes both ways, but never had any, uh, any real feuds. Hubert green helped me out a lot, uh, in my early, early days in the early eighties. He actually, uh, reported me cause I went the club at Hartford on the off the, off the 15th tee into the bushes. And, uh, sure enough, if he didn't, he didn't tell an official and get me reported. And, uh, you know, I asked him why he did that. And I said, I, it wasn't anywhere near any people or anything. And. And he says, because, you know, that's not how you act, and I want you to learn a lesson from this. And actually, we became really good friends after that. And I told him I appreciated it. Uh, there's a few other guys. George Burns, I guess, I am naming names. Uh, was never one of my favorites back in the day. Uh, J.C. Sneed actually helped me out a lot as well back in the early 80s. And uh, I, I thought he was kind of a hard ass, but as it turned out, uh, I, I really, really like J.C. Sneed. So uh, there's a lot of little, little nitpicking stories like that. come to mind but no major no major feuds never got in a fight (laughs) never never had to stare anybody down in the parking lot and and uh uh, you know screaming at me so it it, it's it's been pretty smooth
1: well if i remember right you the the pga tour rolled out the player impact program you know in, in recent months and i remember you maybe not being a fan of it or maybe not uh, is it something you, you're you're well versed in and understand, and 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 you, for, you don't support for whatever reason? I'm curious to kind of hear your, your feedback there.
0: Well, I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of it, but I'm not sure I fully understand it either. Yeah,
1: it it just it, it just seems kind
0: of ridiculous to me to to hand out a bunch of money to you know the ten most popular guys on the PGA Tour that are already multi gazillionaires when uh, uh, you know and now I see they finally have are going to raise the corn to tour purses. Next year, and then by uh, the year after that, they're all going to be at least million dollar tournaments. So that's that's good. Uh, they're way late on that. I'm sure every single player on our tour would agree that we're not playing for enough money either. Uh, but again, we're we're still lucky to be playing. So whatever we play for is is, is good. But obviously, more would be better. Uh, I just thought it was kind of a, a, a weird thing to come up with. I don't know who who, who dreamed that up. Whether it was Monahan or or who who it was, but it's
1: yeah, yeah. It's an it's an interesting topic, especially timing wise, right? Because I can see where you're coming from, yet at the same time, I see very real threats, you know, from the Super Golf League and Premier Golf League threats to the PGA Tour, uh, especially to the to the top players, you know, that large sums of money potentially being thrown at them. Yet, uh, I, and I've always said, you know, when Tiger Woods and and William McGirt tie for eighth, they both get the same paycheck, despite one of those two guys putting a lot more butts in the seats. And uh, you know, doing having some incentive for the top players to want to stick around on the PGA Tour and, and finish out their careers there makes a lot of sense. Yet at the same time, if we have forty million dollars to spend, is that am I in the biggest hurry to, to send it to the top players that are earning the most money? I kind of I see where you're coming from there, but it, it's a, it's an interesting. It, it's just I'm I'm super curious to get guys' feedback. You know, that aren't participating in it necessarily.
0: Yeah, I, I totally understand your
1: point too. I
0: mean, that that that, that is a good
1: uh, good way to good way to put it for sure. So we'll get you out of here on this, and this question's entirely selfish, but uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you remember playing at Riviera Country Club in Dublin, Ohio, sometime between the years 2004 and 2007? Yeah. I cleaned your clubs that day. No, yeah, I was <laughs> I was one of the cart boys there.
0: Yeah, uh, Lisa Cox, <laughs> uh, my wife's best friend, uh, was a member there. And uh, Lisa and Randa and I and uh, a guy by the name of Byron Snotty played and i remember the course well um it's not even it's not there anymore is it no it's
1: gone yeah, it's it breaks gone. my heart no
0: i i thought it was a good driving course i, I enjoyed it so uh, yeah that was that was a, a one and done at uh, at riviera
1: in dublin that's a it's a very very small world <laughs> i can't believe you cleaned my club did i give you a tip at least i don't think you did but and I-, I think i've held a grudge <laughs> against you for 15 plus years or whatever it is but we can call it I'd even after t- this podcast get
0: to the bar get a beer or something
1: well, thanks again for joining us. I'd love to do this again uh, with you sometime. When uh, when are we going to see you back on the golf course?
0: Uh, my new goal, I'm shooting for uh, the second week in August uh, up in Calgary.
1: Awesome. So you'll be in Jacksonville in October then, hopefully. Definitely. All right. Well, we'll see you there. You got it, Chris. Thanks so much for joining Cal. Take care. Anytime. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes!
0: Johnny, yeah, that's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.